This week on the Defense Scoop podcast for the Scoop News Group, the cloud's future in the Pentagon's intelligence operations, and a changing of the guard at the top of the Space Force. It's Wednesday, October 5th, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The military services are merging their electronic warfare and cyber warfare capabilities, and the Defense Department is pushing drones to the forefront of its arsenal. John Harper's managing editor for Defense Scoop. Mark Pomerlow is a reporter for Defense Scoop. Mark, welcome. Thanks for uh, coming on. I start with you first. This convergence of electronic warfare and cyber warfare, is this a new development or is this something that has been in the works for a while and is just hitting a new milestone? Welcome. Thanks, Francis. Uh, I think the short answer to that question is, is actually both, right? Um, to some degree, we, we've started to see this new trend of, of what we hear of as uh, RF-enabled cyber, radio frequency-enabled cyber effects. As, as uh, adversaries are becoming more sophisticated in their targets, uh, the U.S. military is finding it needs different uh, methodologies to get at those targets. And traditional uh, cyber intrusion through, you know, kind of hardwired networks um, and what we think of as traditional hacking just, just aren't going to cut it. So we need, um, you know, more wireless types of intrusions to be able to get at some of these systems. So um, this is something that the services have been paying attention to, this kind of convergence um, however, uh, in the most recent draft of the uh, National Defense Authorization Act, the Senate um, issued a provision that, that is going to require uh, the Department of Defense to really create kind of an integrated strategy. They, I guess, discovered through some oversight that um, there wasn't a coherent effort between all the services or strategy to merge these together in a cohesive way. So um, really, the services were kind of going about this their own way. But um, to your question, yes, this is this is not exactly something new, but what's new is um, the need to, to really converge on a, on a similar path with a, a cohesive strategy. I think I know the answer to this next question, but I'll ask it anyway. And that is, does it require, would executing a strategy like you just described require the services or the department as a whole to acquire new capabilities or define new capabilities, or is it merely putting together the capabilities that they have into that strategy so that they know what the steps to execution are. And I anticipate the answer to the question is it depends. Yeah, I, I think it does depend. And I th think it's both. Um, I think part of it is having some kind of entity that would be able to coordinate these types of efforts uh, centrally. Um, you know, as, as of course, we're seeing with, with the, the, the biggest buzzword in DOD right now, JADC2 or Joint All Domain Command and Control, um, the nature of the threats that, that the DOD is going up against is going to require them to fight in a more joint and coordinated manner. And so I think part of this is um, as, as certain target sets are, are going to make themselves available, um, you know, an army unit on the ground might have to pass targeting information to an F-22 flying above. Um, and so uh, in this in this example of, of, you know, kind of RF enabled cyber, I think um, you're going to need uh, an integrated strategy in which uh, 
some service is going to need to pass off information to another to get at that target set. So I think really it's about um, coordination and integration um, against much more sophisticated threats than we've seen in the past. John Harper, welcome. Uh, one element that will be part of whatever integration efforts Mark is, to, uh, is detailing is drones as they become more and more a part of the arsenal that the department uses and, or expects to use in a, in a future fight. You've got two stories up on defensegroup.com about drones. What's the broad trend that you're seeing? And similar question to what I asked at the beginning of the conversation with Mark. Are we seeing new developments regarding drones or are we just seeing more discussion of what the department has kind of been doing all along with drones? Well, we're seeing a combination, Francis. Um, You know, one uh, type of weapon that's, uh, you know, been in the headlines recently is uh, loitering munitions. Uh, also known as kamikaze drones or suicide drones, because they basically just fly around until they find a target and then, you know, fly into it and detonate a warhead or just kill it uh, kinetically. And uh, one thing I thought was interesting from a press conference last week, you know, there is a lot of concern from a supply chain perspective um, about munitions and having sufficient production rates. Uh, but Bill O'Plant, the uh, Pentagon's top weapons buyer, uh, doesn't seem uh, to be too concerned about that when it comes to loitering munitions, uh, you know, noting that, uh, you know, the industrial base here in the U.S. and among allies overseas, you know, seem to be cranking out uh, different varieties of these types of things. Uh, the uh, DOD has provided Ukraine uh, uh, switchblade systems, uh, which have been around for a while, but they also have sent... Uh, a new Phoenix Ghost system. They kind of revealed that uh, a couple of months ago. And uh, they've been very secretive about, you know, what kind of capabilities it has. So new variants are being produced and the DOD writ large seems very keen on these uh, types of weapons. Um, But on the defensive side, you know, they're also looking uh, for technologies to shoot down enemy drones, whether they're loitering munitions, Uh, or other types of uh, drones that are kind of on that uh, spectrum. Yeah, that was where I wanted to go next, because we won't be the only ones in a future fight to have drones. Our our potential adversaries will have them as well. And I wonder what that looks like as we're trying to think about both offensive and defensive capabilities vis-a-vis drones. Yeah, another thing that I thought was interesting from uh, Bill LaPlante's press conference last week you know, the uh, DOD had announced that as part of this latest tranche of weapons uh, committed to Ukraine, it would include a suite of uh, counter drone capabilities. But unlike for some previous tranches, uh, they don't want to talk about, you know, what's included there. Uh, a couple months ago, they announced that L3 Harris's vampire system was going to be sent there, which is basically, uh, you know, a system that uh, detects drones and fires uh, you know, a missile to intercept them, essentially shoot them down. But there's a whole variety of uh, counter drone technologies out there, not just those kinetic interceptors, but directed energy weapons like high powered lasers, high powered microwaves, uh, you know, electronic warfare uh, type of systems where you can try to disrupt data links of enemy drones um, and force them to crash or lose contact. Uh, with the people who are remotely operating them. So we don't know what these new, this new suite of counter drone systems headed to Ukraine will entail, but DOD is certainly working on a variety of these technologies as is 
uh, the U.S. defense industry. So that's definitely a trend uh, to keep an eye on. I normally at this point in the program ask each of you what you're going to cover in the coming weeks. I think it goes without saying that you and your colleague, Brandy Vincent, are probably three of the most excited people in Washington in anticipation of the annual Association of the United States Army show. It's one of the best shows of the year anywhere. It's terrific. That it's right in our backyard. John, what do you expect to look for at AUSA the beginning of next week? What kind of reporting do you think folks should anticipate coming out of that show? Well, I'm hoping to get an update from the Army's uh, cross-functional team leaders who are spearheading a lot of their top modernization efforts. In the past, you know, they've met with reporters and you know, taking questions about where things are going with their portfolios. So I'm hoping we'll have some more opportunities there uh, and to write about those. I'm also interested to hear from Doug Bush, the head of uh, the Army's ASALT office, who's, you know, oversees uh, the acquisition enterprise for the Army uh, to get his latest thoughts on where things are headed with modernization and maybe any new uh, initiatives that might be coming down the road. Mark, are you tracking anything in particular from AUSA or are you just going to go and and see what comes across your path? Sure. Yeah, um, I'm interested to hear, um, I guess, a a preview of the Army's kind of capstone event of Project Convergence, uh, which has been happening um, every fall for the last couple of years. Um, I think we're going to hear from some officials giving us a slight preview as to what they'll be testing and what they hope to get out of that event this year. So um, definitely looking forward to hearing about that. Gentlemen, I look forward to all that reporting, and I thank you very much for coming on the show with me today. Thanks, Francis. You can see that AUSA coverage next week and more about the stories that we talked about at defensescoop.com. Cybersecurity is one of the Defense Intelligence Agency's top mission priorities, according to Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, the director of DIA. Ramesh Manon is the chief technology officer at DIA. He tells Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash about the scope of his agency's cyber landscape. Uh, My agency primarily provides the top secret networks for the world. I mean, at least for our U.S. services around the world in lots of countries. And you probably know the journey to cloud. We had some large contract with C2S. Now we are moving to a hybrid multi-cloud environment, C2E. So the networks have to evolve. How can I deploy my applications on any cloud whenever I want, including edge nodes? So we are trying to modernize our JVX top secret network. Uh, We are looking at innovations in our wide area network, looking at things like uh, SD-WAN, software-defined WANs that will create an abstraction layer so we can deploy our workloads to any cloud. We are also slowly exploring and understanding the 5G capabilities, the role of uh, open radio access networks to understand the supply chain impacts and the economic impacts of the telecom com- com- companies. So I believe we understand it, we are working hard, and we want a resilient, secure networks to support the mission needs. Well, I know you're all moving as um, on a very um, fast-paced effort to continue to improve all that. Uh, with that said, what are your top priorities over the next year to improve the performance and scalability of your networks? Couple of things. Obviously, you probably have heard about something called zero trust that U.S. government is doing. 
So when we create things like zero trust, we also need to ensure it is not just about cybersecurity, but the value it brings to the application in terms of performance, scalability, and how do we leverage the power of cloud and cloud native applications in deploying a workload to any cloud node, whether it's on a ship or a submarine or a satellite. So we make sure that our networks are resilient, our workloads are optimized for the cloud, and we are also starting to explore things like quantum safe encryption to improve the resiliency of our uh, classified networks. And as you think about those priorities and your acquisition plans, can you comment on how cost versus value will play into uh, your decisions? That's a very important question. Acquisition in government is not a simple process as probably most of us know. Uh, but I believe our goal is to provide the value that it supports our mission priorities. The mission is more important. We are here providing critical capabilities for our warfighters and officers around the world, including our partners and allies. So value is definitely very important and cost is a factor. So we, it is a standard procurement process that we go through, but ultimately we need to make sure that it not only supports today's requirement, but it's a strategic sustainable investment that can be reused for future mission needs. You mentioned zero trust before, and uh, networks are obviously one part of several elements within zero trust, but thinking about networks specifically, what additional steps are you taking to build in greater security protections into your networks? So a couple of parts, right? Networks are the underlying like a freeway or the road. What runs on it is what we're protecting. So the data is what we're protecting. So we need to understand the concept of data fabrics and the cross-domain policies where we have implicit trust, the points of implicit trust and make it explicit. The how we share APIs, how is it going to be shared? Is it a platform capability? How are our applications orchestrated to leverage this new architectural evolution? So while we become more secure and make sure we are resilient with the cybersecurity regulations, we need to make sure that we look in terms of value, not just a control to improve security, but as an enabler to accelerate the value for our mission partners and mission owners from an application standpoint too. Well, and as we all know, um, the Department of Defense has so many networks all over the world uh, that do need to continually be upgraded. What, what is your agency doing to try to speed up your network modernization procurement process? And can I also ask, you know, what key issues are you still experiencing working with your technology partners? I think luckily the big program for us is JVIX modernization. It has been funded, it's a program of record. So we don't have any funding challenges per se because once it becomes a program of record, things move. And then it's just a process. And it is one of the most secure networks we have for Department of Defense and Intelligence community. We are continuing to enhance the value and be that niche exclusive provider of that top secret network for our warfighters and policymakers uh, in a world of rapidly changing technology. There's a lot of things happening. How do we pivot to hybrid multi-cloud? What does it mean for fielding an algorithm on an unmanned system? And doesn't matter what the capability is, there has to be a road below, which is the network. So we are working very closely with our partners, industry, and academia to make sure we have the best and the most resilient network in the world to support our mission needs and priorities.
Ramesh Manon, the Chief Technology Officer of the Defense Intelligence Agency with Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash. You can find a link to the video of that conversation in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. The Senate's confirmed Lieutenant General Chance Saltzman to be the next Chief of Space Operations. The first and current Chief, General Jay Raymond, will retire after 38 years of service. Defense Scoop's Brandy Vinson asked General Raymond at a recent briefing about his experience as CSO. Sticking to the vein of you approaching your exit, we've heard you say a lot, space is hard. I've heard a lot of people say you have the hardest job in the military right now. Thinking of it from a technology lens specifically, what has been a really hard day for you? From a technology lens? I, so, first of all, I don't think I have the hardest job. I think I've got the best job. <laughs> what a cool opportunity. What a cool opportunity to be given an opportunity to, to uh, help establish a service that is so critical to our, to our nation and, uh, and to bring the team together and then to have an opportunity to plan something and then bring it, make it real. And I will tell you, the Space Force is doing spectacularly. Uh, because of the guardians that we have. So I think it's the best job. On the technology hard piece, I, I don't know if there is a, I don't know if I have one that's like, this was a bad day technology-wise. I, I, I mean, clearly as we think through new force designs, one of the things that our secretary always talks about, I've been pushing, hey, you gotta move at speed. We've gotta move faster. We have to move faster. Uh, we also need to make sure that we're, that we're delivering the right thing. And so there's a balance between doing all the analysis and getting this right, and then once that's done, kind of moving at speed. But you don't want to move at speed and then find yourself in a spot that, uh, boy, I wish we hadn't done that. And so I think uh, technology-wise, I think the challenge has been more uh, uniting the department, getting different voices to agree on a force design, underpinned by the facts that we can then all say, okay, this is the way we're going to go, and then we all roll in the same direction. I think it's been more challenging organizationally than it has been tech technically. And I will tell you that the value that the Space Force has brought is you now have a service that's an expert in this domain that comes to work every day focused on it, and we've been able to build the analytical rigor and bring the team together to be able to do that. And I think that's been the the most significant consequential work that we've done, and, um, and, and it's taken a lot of effort. Absolutely, and then just a quick follow-up. Um, the Space Force's chief for Intel told us last week that um, China, the PLA, and its Space Force has doubled satellites on orbit in the last three years, more than 600 up there right now for surveillance to extend their range of weapons. I'm wondering um, how you're gauging and confronting that, and also, um, can we expect the Space Force to maybe share a little bit more about uh, deterrence from an offensive perspective with satellites uh, as this goes on? Oh, uh, as I mentioned up front, China is moving very fast uh, in, in two areas. One, in the area that, that you just highlighted on building a, a, a robust architecture for their own use. So if deterrence were to fail, uh, they would have the same value that we've, benefit that we've had by integrating space into all that we do. Um, and on the second piece of that is they've they've uh, are 
are moving out on building a, a suite of capabilities. I've talked about this before, everything from reversible jamming to kinetic destruction uh, to keep us from accessing, accessing, accessing our space capability. Um, I still think we're the best in the world of space. I, I strongly believe that space has a role in deterrence. And I, I strongly support the, the, the National Defense Strategy's uh, foundation of integrated deterrence as, uh, as a key part of that strategy. And I strongly uh, feel that space has a play in that integrated deterrence uh, in both um, you know, if you look at deterrence calculus, deterrence calculus is, is denying benefits and imposing costs, and then being able to communicate those to who you're trying to deter. Uh, one of our challenges has been uh, the ability, we're overly classified, and we've been working to reduce the classification, because I think if you look at, uh, I, I think it's important for several reasons. One, it helps us integrate with our partners better, and two, I think it helps us uh, in our deterrence message. General Jay Raymond, the outgoing chief of space operations. You can read more about the Space Force in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. The Defense Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Defense Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together every week, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop podcast returns next Wednesday. I'm Francis Rose. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening.